The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it. Baby, do you have cats on your shirt? Yeah, man. You are literally in the cat's pajamas right now. How about that? (laughs) I'm a cat daddy. (laughs) Something that I never was until I was in my early 50s. Never had pets before. And now I have two precious little babies. The lights of your life. Are they obese? Or are they little? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not yet. That's a very American thing. We do like our pets to be obese. (laughs) Mine is very obese, yeah. Oh. He's he's big bone. He's over... Yeah, he's he's a mix of a Maine Coon, I think. So I think that, you know, adds some... I think he's big. Yeah. Yeah, They can be big. It's a huge cat. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It it is the American standard that our pets are very much so overweight. I don't know why we just culturally, we just like them chunky. Because yeah. it's so much easier to hold. It's like a way to blanket, you know? Them. It's harder for them to run we'll away. We'll just have a, oh, there a you podcast go. about cats. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Coat Podcast. Weird news. Fresh views. Helpful clues and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast. It's the show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose. A production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. With me in the SCP studio. She is a fearless prophet wielding her intellect like a sword to reveal the heart of each discussion. It's M1 Hind Al-Khulani. Damn. Wow. <laughs> His voice is like the music of the celestial spheres. It's M3 AJ Chowdhury joining us from the internet. Thank you for the virtual consult. <laughs> he is a cunning and enigmatic trickster eager to grant your incautiously formulated wish. It's M1 Jeff Goddard. Careful what you wish for, Cloud. She comes bearing gifts from her lips to your ears. It's M1 Irvina. <laughs> oh, I forgot to ask you. Tabakovic? Tabakovic? Uh, Tabakovic. Tabakovic. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Welcome to the show for your first time. And if you thought that was all shortcuts, then I find your lack of faith disturbing. We're joined today by a special guest, University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics Interfaith Chaplain David Kozashek. Well done. Okay, okay, good. Well done. Good. Uh, <laughs> David, welcome to the short coat. Thank you. Glad nice to, to be here. Our topic today is the intersections between faith and healthcare. I think of this in two ways, personally. First, exploring how healthcare professionals can effectively recognize and accommodate uh, the diverse religious beliefs of their patients. And second, examining how medical practitioners who themselves are faithful integrate and harmonize their beliefs with their medical practice. I've always wanted to talk about this on the on the show because it's a crucial aspect of many people's lives. But, you know, I'm not religious myself, so I never really felt like I knew enough or, you know, had enough wherewithal myself to lead the discussion, which is why when Hind volunteered to take on this this topic i was really excited plus it meant that i get to you know sort of sit back and you know <laughs> relax a little bit so i appreciate that hint thanks yeah i'm really excited for this i think starting medical school is a time if not any other time to start thinking critically about what you grew up with or things that you see are very important in other people's lives that maybe you aren't familiar with and 
I feel like any big life event, like starting medical school or anything like that, is a time to start thinking about this kind of stuff. I mean, the whole goal of medical school isn't just to make you pass your boards or exams. It's mm-hmm. to get you to start thinking like a physician. And part of that is trying to figure out like who you are and what you're becoming and where you want to go with it. So, yeah, I think there's so many different ways to approach this kind of topic. I wasn't sure where to start and really the only training well it was great but the only training we've had so far was a lecture in our first semester about the role of chaplains at the university of iowa and the integral part they play in the healthcare team so to talk about that i wanted to invite you david on the show and to start off this discussion ask you about your role as part of the healthcare team i think that a lot of our listeners and I feel like the majority of medical students as well coming in are not familiar with the role that you play. So can you tell us a little bit about your role? I sure can. Thanks for the question. I'll start with myself. I work primarily in surgical and neuroscience intensive care unit, and I'm also part-time on the adult palliative care team. And we have, I think, well, I should have checked before I came, 12 chaplains now, I think, for the whole hospital, including denominational chaplains. There's two that are Catholic priests, and they see just Catholic patients, mainly for sacramental needs. That's why the Catholic Church has two people here to meet Catholics' needs. The rest of us are interfaith, which means we're here for everyone else. We're here for Catholics, too, if need be, but we're here for anyone and everyone, no matter what their background is, if they have a religion, if they don't, if they're not sure, if they don't believe at all in any kind of God or afterlife or any kind of a religious faith, it doesn't matter to us as chaplains. We're here for everyone to meet their deepest human needs in what is often a crisis situation for them. If they end up at the university hospital, they're sick. (laughs) So sickness of any kind usually helps us to pause and really think about the deep questions in life. So that's what we're here to help people with. I assume that a patient requests somebody to come and talk with them how does that usually come to you and do you like you know run right over and you know like how does that actually work yeah there's several ways that we get information about who wants to see a chaplain i could go a couple different ways of this the real practical aspect is we can either get a consult order that's put in by a physician or a provider and that we take a little more seriously as far as urgency we're on call. Someone is always on call on the pager. Yeah, you're on call right now, basically. I have two hours off of on call Ooh. right now, so I can be here. But yes, today's my day for on call, so that can take us anywhere. So on call is the priority, and then consult orders would be the next priority. And then screening requests when patients are admitted here to University Hospital, they're asked, would you like to see a chaplain? And if they say yes, they end up in our database for people who do want to see a chaplain. And those are divided up in various ways. And so do you... Sorry. It's okay. Speaking of on-call. Okay. 
It's yeah. nothing I need to do anything about, thankfully. <laughs> when you get these requests, do you, what do you know about the patient? Very little, yeah. usually. We do chart on patients, so we have access to patients' medical records through EPIC, which I can't speak for other chaplains. I try not to go right to the chart to figure out what's going on with them because that can bias me in various ways. We can talk about, you know, medicine versus maybe the more humanistic elements of healthcare in that regard. So I try not to fill my head too much with what's already been charted on them medically, unless I'm kind of stymied as to why I'm getting called in, then I might look at the chart. But otherwise, we do have a listing of whatever their religious preference is, if they have one. However, that's often inaccurate. Mm. When they're registered, a lot of things happen quickly all at once. And a lot of times that information isn't accurate. So it might give me a clue, it might not. <laughs> so in the end, it's really, I just, I go, I meet the person, try to figure out where they're at, what's going on, who they are, do they have a religious preference? Do they not? Questions like that. I'd love to learn like any advice you have and advice that you give providers in general. So in school, we're given a lot of recommendations and advice for learning how to build a relationship with a patient. And in your role, you're doing that in a high intensity environment about something very personal to the patient and they've just met you. So right. how do you approach that? What kind of skills do you use to build that relationship? Yeah, I would say the most important skill is self-awareness. <laughs> so I, a lot of our training and chaplaincy, and if that's of interest, I can talk a little bit about what that is. Sure, yeah. But self-awareness is a big part of it. We are really educated in how to be aware of our own stuff so that when I'm meeting somebody for the first time, I'm not just coming at that person with my own belief system or values or communication style, anything like that. So self-awareness is one skill. Non-judgmental presence, I guess I would say, is another one. A lot of times people, if they have some sense of what a chaplain is, if they're not comfortable with a chaplain, it may be because they feel like they're going to be judged by the chaplain. Because unfortunately, a lot of people have a history of being judged by religious figures. So what I want to do is walk into their room, be very respectful, be very open and curious, non-judgmental, aware of what's going on with me, and then just enter into conversation as much or as little as that person wants. So a lot depends on the circumstances. There could be family there. They could be providers coming and going. But yeah, does that yeah. answer the question? And is your role in those situations, when I think of religion, I often think of ritual and all that kind of stuff. And I don't imagine that an interfaith chaplain spends a lot of time on ritual as much as they do on, I don't know, counseling? Is that the right way to think of it? 
Yeah, I wouldn't use the word counseling. We're not trained to do counseling as uh -huh. such. So we're careful about making that boundary, distinction, that boundary. And we do rituals. We can provide rituals if that's something that the person finds helpful and comforting and meaningful. But that's not our go-to first. Yeah, you like yeah. run right in and start. Yeah. You know, if you happen to know that they're Catholic, you don't start flinging holy water or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Right. Makes right. a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you want to find out what they need, right? Right. Mm. Right. Yeah. And, you know, some religions are more ritual based than others. So, yeah. Yeah. So the main thing that we do is we take people where they're at. We try to figure out, you know, what makes life meaningful for them. How is that being challenged right now because of their illness, if it is? How do they find purpose in life? What are their major connections, their relationships? Is it family? Is it friends? Do they have a connection to some higher power of some sort? Things like that, just to try to figure out who they are and what's important to them so that we can help them draw on their strengths to help cope with the illness and on occasion we'll lift up something that we see that might be actually causing more distress mm -hmm. to them because of their beliefs whatever that might be Shortcoats, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us. And don't forget to tag us in your post. Thank you. Are there any like stories that come to mind or any specific patients that come to mind where you could have seen how the role of a chaplain really majorly improved their outcomes? Yeah, they, there are stories. I'll try to think of one that isn't real current. I don't like to use current Definitely. examples. <laughs> I'll use one that I used in the lecture for M1s this last fall. And that was in another hospital in another state. <laughs> on a behavioral health unit a young woman had been admitted with bipolar disorder and she was definitely in a manic phase and really caught up in all kinds of religious ideation she happened to be catholic and she had a lot of religious ideation kind of convoluted with her past work as a mary Kay salesperson I won't go into how that all fit together, but she was suffering. Her mind was going a thousand miles an hour. She was just suffering so much with that, but didn't really realize it because of the illness. And the message I got as a chaplain was that she was non-compliant. Ah, that, the old non-compliant. That golden word, <laughs> non-compliant, with her medication regimen. So that's why she was in such a manic phase at the time so when she talked she was one oh boy was she happy to see me <laughs> oh the chaplain the chaplain will understand this so she talked quickly and at length about some of her um beliefs and signs that she was seeing everywhere and 
at one point she talked about having been at mass catholic mass and seeing the priest carrying the gospel book down the aisle at the beginning of mass and the gospel book had was divided on the front cover divided into quarters with in each corner of the cover of the book was one of the gospel writers so that sparked her imagination and then she said she got here not here to that hospital and sat down with her doctor who was trying to help her and the doctor was trying to explain what was going on with her from her illness perspective and he drew on a piece of paper across into so it divided the paper into four sections oh boy that was so meaningful yeah, to yeah. her so meaningful to her but in a religious and spiritual sense so she kind of took off again on a tangent about what that meant and really not in my mind making a lot of sense but it was just so significant to her so at one point i just stopped her i said oh i'm surprised that you're saying this i thought you were going to tell me that meant that god is working through your doctor and she just stopped for the first time she stopped talking i never thought of it that way she said and long story short that shifted everything for her she was able to cooperate with the doctor's plan for her with her medication regimen and she was able to be released from the hospital after some time of course but i use that as an example because we can come in with what we call pastoral or spiritual authority we're a religious figure in some ways so people can look to us as having that kind of authority and we can use that to help people to get better that's maybe a unique story in that sense but everybody's i imagine every patient is unique when they yeah come to you and absolutely that's an interesting story yeah and there's research about outcomes and how chaplains can positively impact outcomes in healthcare. So. Definitely. Yeah. Dave, I have a question for you. So, on psychiatry, I took care of a lot of patients that had delusions of religion. Have you ever encountered a patient that may believe that they're a religious figure? And if so, how do you interact with them in a way that is good patient care without necessarily strengthening any delusions they may have good question excellent question i would say first of all it may be the case that actually having a chaplain interact with that patient at that time is not a good idea for that reason that you mentioned we can sometimes inadvertently fix that ideation that they're having that's causing trouble for them in their daily life and that's the last thing we want to do is help to fix or solidify what their belief system is that's part of an illness because now you've become part of that story right yeah right so we have to be very careful when i get paged to go see someone on a behavioral health unit i do try to assess first what's going on with them and 
if they're in a manic phase or if they're actively delusional, paranoid. It depends, you know, how what how strong their symptoms are at the time. But there are times when I'll say, I just don't think now is the best time, even though the patient is probably requesting to talk to a chaplain for that very reason. They think that the chaplain will come and understand what's going on with them, which we probably will, but not in the way that they're hoping. <laughs> yeah. So we have to be very careful with that, and we work closely with the people who are professionals in that regard so that we don't make things worse. But there are times when we can definitely bring comfort and people feel safe talking to us and we're all good listeners. <laughs> That's another skill, I guess, I didn't mention. but <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But yeah, it's a good question. I have a question as well. Like you mentioned earlier how like some people can, you know, be kind of scared to reach out to a chaplain because like judgment that they've received from religious figures before. Have you like encountered a situation where it's like, I don't know, the patient wasn't very like cooperative, I guess, when you came like or was there any like bad situations that happened and how did you mitigate that? If I understand the question correctly if not let me know there are times when i get asked to go see someone and as soon as i walk in the door and introduce myself the person's like no way get out <laughs> sometimes with a string of profanity and that's fine i'll say okay i might try to squeeze in a few words about how i can be of help to them just by listening and you know don't have to talk about God, don't have to talk about religion. But usually if it's a very strong negative reaction, I'll just say, okay, you know, have a good day. <laughs> and I'll turn and leave. Yeah. But other times, you know, somebody will say, oh, well, you know, I'm not very religious. And I'll say, well, I'm not either. So we'll get along really well together. <laughs> and that's true. I don't consider myself to be very religious. So we should maybe talk about, we don't have to now, but at some point, the difference between being religious and being spiritual. Now seems no, like a great, a, time. a great time. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> so as chaplains, we make that distinction. And again, I'll just speak for myself. I see kind of a continuum along those lines of spirituality. We can talk in a very secular sense about the human spirit and how the human spirit copes with being sick or being healthy or approaching the end of life or whatever the circumstance may be. So that's kind of my secular approach. Everyone has a human spirit. You can call that a personality or a character or whatever word you want to use, but I look at it as a spirit. There's, we're a gestalt. There's more to us than just the sum of our parts. So people identify that in different ways but then there are also people who do believe in god or a higher power or maybe nature in a much deeper sense than most of us do and they consider themselves to be spiritual but they're not attached to any institutional religion no formal religion or religious tradition 
So that's another sense of being spiritual, but not religious. And then there are people who do identify as being religious. They're, the root word is religare. It's a Latin word that means to bind together. And that's part of an organized institutional formal religion is there's a set of beliefs usually that bind people together into a religious tradition. Right. So some people identify as religious in that sense. Our episode today is sponsored by Panacea Financial. It's a nationwide digital bank built for doctors by doctors. Panacea Financial is designed for medical students and residents as it was founded by two doctors that were financially frustrated during their training. Thousands of doctors have used their PRN personal loan to avoid credit cards and use a better way to cover expenses for residency, relocation, or other life expenses. Panacea's PRN personal loan does not require a cosigner, has no minimum credit score requirement, and has interest rates starting at half of a typical credit card. They also offer a period of no or reduced payments on their PRN personal loan. So go to panaceafinancial.com slash matchday to learn more about Panacea and get other helpful information on Match Day, residency transition. Panacea Financial is a division of Premise, member FDIC. Thanks for the support, Panacea. Let's get back to the podcast. I thought I had when I started medical school was like, should I be leaving all of my spirituality at the door every time I step in? You know, in, in what ways? In what ways is bringing religion going to disconnect me from my patients or stop me from making the right decision or the most medical decision? And I wanted to open this up to like any co-hosts. If you do prescribe to a spiritual or religious like belief, is like, how do you reconcile that part of your identity with the science that we're learning every day and with the very objective skills that we're learning every day? Do you guys? keep those separate or are there ways that you can integrate them into your into us as budding providers and i think aj would also have like like as an m3 you probably have a lot of experience with this on the wards too yeah i actually did ob when roe v wade was repealed last year and part of that rotation was actually at a catholic hospital where reproductive care wasn't as i guess as versatile and so i do have some moments where i don't think that having certain religious beliefs are going to help patient care and that's where ultimately i would draw the line personally with like where does religion and providing health care being a physician I guess like where I need to say like, hey, if my beliefs don't allow me to provide you the care that is necessary for you, at the very minimum, I feel like it is the responsibility of that physician to at least refer the patient to somebody who is capable of doing that. Because ultimately, I took the Hippocratic Oath to take a responsibility for my patients. If my beliefs don't allow me to do that in good conscience, then the least I can do is direct them to someone who can give them the care without necessarily infringing on their personal beliefs or their conscience. And not even just the care that's necessary for them, right? Like the care that they want to have, right? Like the that choice that they're making. Yeah, because when you start talking about necessary, I guess you're now you're getting back to judgment. Like exactly who decides who that? Who decides right? that and yeah. Yeah, and 
because one person may believe that their God is the God that should dictate the way they live their life doesn't necessarily mean that somebody else's God or God's would hold the same direction. And I'm not somebody who says that my way is the right way or my beliefs are the right beliefs. And therefore, I should not be the gatekeeper when it comes to this. How does that, how does that idea sit with y'all? I'll go ahead and push back. Why not? So we live in a pluralistic society. I think I personally believe that, that is a good thing, that people have a diversity of views and beliefs. I think one of our, some a theme in my conversations on this podcast over the last year have been that we need a lot more humility in the sciences. We certainly need a lot more humility in the active science that is medicine about really getting down to what is right and wrong and what is preference right some things we i think we're fairly comfortable saying these things would be wrong right like not treating a patient who is in an emergent situation because i don't we don't like the color of the shirt whatever for whatever reason right that would be wrong right some other things we have to recognize as um preference for example perhaps you are not comfortable providing a specific elective procedure because for you as the provider you see that you can't see how the risks can't be ignored and the benefits aren't significant enough and that is a preference for you as a provider and for that procedure maybe a different provider might do something else of course we would be very comfortable saying okay maybe go talk to that other provider if you think that this is the procedure for you right but it I personally, in good conscience, can't do that. Uh, but that is a gray area because it is a, a risk-benefit analysis, right? There is no right answer. And I think there are a lot of conversations that we can have around things that are uh, religious concerns for a lot of people with healthcare that have evolved over the centuries and millennia that we've been practicing religion and medicine concurrently that some issues I think we can settle, right? Like, I think most providers at this point i would like to say all but i know that's not true most providers are comfortable saying ectopic pregnancies are a danger to the patient they have to be addressed it will be an abortion and there is no way to stop that from being an abortion the embryo is growing in a part of the body that it cannot gestate and it will cause the mother to die if we don't address this there's just no other way around that right we understand that's i would call that more or less settled science at this point right but there are other conversations around even reproductive health care that people are going to have different opinions on that I think are well within the realm of preference and not right and wrong. And a lot of people like to push them into the right and wrong category, I think, prematurely. And I think that we need to be careful of that. That said, we also need to make sure that we are not pushing like in the opposite direction. We need to certainly let people have their preferences, um, but we need to be careful not to push any of our preferences into the right and wrong category prematurely. I don't see where you're pushing back on this. I think you <laughs> said the same thing. Okay, so I'll give an example. This idea that providers can have preferences that for them are hard and fast, and that should be okay. A provider who thinks that euthanasia is not okay in this country, even though the ethics at this point are morally gray, and I think it's probably starting to shift toward it being more appropriate. It's not there yet. Our, our society as a whole is still not comfortable with it, but we're getting there, right? But that's a conversation where there's a lot more gray than people on either side want there to be. People in the, this is definitely not okay camp, and the people in this is definitely okay camp, both want it to be 
a hard and fast yes or no. So what you're pushing back on here is not what AJ said he would do in a certain situation. You're pushing back on the idea that some providers are willing to do certain things and other providers aren't willing to do certain things and that they would, boy, I'm messing this up. Let me, let me try this one. I think that it is imperative that we make sure that providers are offered the opportunity to execute their own moral judgment. There are limits to that, the ectomic pregnancy being an example, but for the most part, I think that should be celebrated, not denigrated. Okay. I think one way that you could translate that into action, right, would be like, if you're not morally comfortable doing something, the basic necessity like requirement that you are responsible to finish as a provider is getting them to that other provider who is willing to do it like you can't just be like all right i'm not doing this you know see you never it's your role to find a provider refer them to a provider who will be willing to do a certain procedure or follow up in the care that the patient wants get them to that place and give them the resources so that they can get to that provider i think Right. I feel like no matter your background or your how you feel about a certain patient's issue or what they want to do, that is your moral obligation. And I know that this is totally like I feel, this whole discussion has a billion different ways that you can approach it. There's no right answer. But I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts on that or... I do want to clarify that you do have an ethical and legal responsibility for patients that may be medically unstable or may not have a better option for care other than a treatment choice that as a provider you may not necessarily agree with. You're still obligated to provide them with a referral for care or transferring them to a different hospital, for example. And that's where we're running into all these problems in various states where we have bans on certain reproductive care and now women have to be on death's doorstep before mm -hmm. they can get an abortion so that's something to be aware of that you are required for the most part but the legal landscape right now is also a very treacherous minefield to say the least of should you do this can you do this are you allowed to do this so on and so forth and see, this is actually the perfect example, right? So if we have a provider who is one, the big example in our culture over the last couple of years from a religious perspective has been Jewish beliefs around life starts at birth, right? That is the theology in Judaism, at least how it's been shared in the online gestalt, I guess. This is, this is how it works. And therefore, these abortion bans are against their religious freedom, right? So if I, as a provider... Am Jewish. That is not the case. But if I am as a provider, am Jewish, and a patient comes in, and even though the law says X, I know that this patient is at risk if I don't do this. Even if I'm breaking the law, I have a moral and a religious obligation to do it. I think that's the flip example that I'm trying to give here. Is that like it doesn't really matter what everybody else's religious preferences are what matters is a mix between what's right for the patient and what i see is right and i kind of have to go with my gut on this one and i know that puts me a legally gray area but i mean i think at the end of the day don't we want providers that are willing to do the ethical and moral thing i don't know it's kind of a it's a hard it's a hard point to be at and that's also sounds like a very fine line because if you put forth the argument that providers to do the ethical thing even if it goes against the law 
which laws, you know, because I feel like that could get very dangerous very quickly based on a provider's preferences. Yeah, it can. So, And it should be something that we are aware of when dealing with these types of issues, that it is entirely possible for there to be an immoral law. It is oh, entirely yeah, possible for there to be somebody who is immoral outside of the law. Both are possible, right? So I think that it, the point is to recognize that morality and ethics and legality are three separate circles that sometimes overlap. And frankly, that's a hard understanding. And we're in a career where we get dangerously close to lines on that a lot by the necessity of what we do here. That's problematic. I don't know. Like it's, it's not going to get any easier. I think just recognizing that's the case is important. I don't know. I feel like you might have some thoughts on that, but oh, I do. <laughs> just general ones, though. I just as far as language, I think what you're all talking about is provider conscience. You know, should I be forced to do something that goes against my moral judgment or my conscience? And that's a tension. It's a very real tension. And I encourage you to keep exploring that within yourselves. Where are those lines? Where are those boundaries? When you bump up against one, try to think of other ways that you can meet the need in front of you without violating your own conscience. But that can be, as far as referring people to providers who are comfortable providing certain services, that can be a privileged position mm. here at a university academic center medical center it probably isn't so hard but in a lot of rural areas you might be the only provider yeah you might be referring them to somebody in a whole different town or right yeah, yeah. right so like, i get the argument that like I mean, since the cat's already out of the bag, I, abortion is just the easiest conversation to have, right? So if on is one it, side... Is it the easiest conversation? <laughs> easy, the easiest example, I, know, I, I know. think, for this fight, right? So I, I would consider my religious and moral imperative to be making sure that mother is taken care of, right? If the mother is at risk, my, my moral obligation for my religious background would require that I take care of her and make sure that... Yeah, I get it. Legality is a big issue in like 31 states at this point, but I've got to make sure that she's taken care of. And if that means terminating the pregnancy, that means terminating the pregnancy. Whereas somebody else who might come from a different religious background, I can think of one very specifically. I won't say it. I don't want to cause any drama, but that might see the exact opposite, that their moral imperative, no matter what the law is, is to make sure that child or that fetus has every opportunity to survive even at the risk of the mother's life no matter what the laws around the situation might be and here we are both playing in the same game and the laws might move closer to my side or their side at any given moment but our consciences aren't and we're still in the same game and there's a lot of tension there short coats we love to hear from you no matter what it's about so call us at 347 short ct with questions shower thoughts complaints about your situation whatever you like we'll talk about it on the show so i thought that we could find a way to get us thinking and get us in a provider's shoes in a situation like this where spirituality or religion can like influence the patient interaction and a interaction that might be pretty common to us as like we go through our medical education so i thought we could do a little bit of like a role play with a patient so i adapted this from um 
article from the AMA Journal of Ethics. And so it's kind of like a pick your ending kind of game. So let's say we have a medical student. Ms. Irvino, would you like to be your medical <laughs> sure. student? So you walk into my patient room. Okay. I have a major surgery scheduled the next day. Irvina, I'm really scared. Can you pray with me? What do you do? All right. I've got some options, but there's totally... Number one would be solution not otherwise stated. B, <laughs> pray with the patient regardless of your own belief system. C, offer to invite a staff chaplain or spiritual liaison into the room. Or D, offer to get the patient a donut. What did you do? <laughs> the donut and then something else. <laughs> you know what could solve this situation? Some pastry. <laughs> I mean, pastry solves many problems, but I'm That's not. That's fair. You know, it's worth considering. Okay. In this situation, like I'm going to answer like as myself. So I consider myself religious, but you know, that might not be the same religion as the patient. So I think I would like pray with them but then i would also if i wasn't religious then i would like offer my chaplain come in or yeah i guess it just depends on the situation too but i think yeah it would go in line with like kind of my religious beliefs so i think that's why it's mm-hmm. a little easier for me to answer that part okay <laughs> yeah do you have any thoughts on that or yeah does anyone else want to respond aj uh, or jeff it's been a mo- it's been a while since I took Mass One, and I remember there being a right answer to this question, at least on a test. Yeah. That said, really. That said, I personally would feel very comfortable with it. Uh, mm-hmm. I would ask what, how they would want that to be, uh, whether they wanted to voice out loud, if they wanted us to pray separately, silently, if they wanted me to be a mouthpiece to that, and kind of get an idea of what it should look like for them, for it to be as meaningful as possible for them. But it really. I think that I would feel very comfortable assisting them in that other people may not. I don't, I don't know what I'm yeah. supposed to be doing. I feel like that's yeah, what I would feel more information about like how yeah they pray is like one yeah. thing, and then you can kind of tailor it to like how you pray, and then you know kind of work through that way. Yeah. I know. That I think the right answer was a chaplain one. <laughs> I remember right. I don't know. The reason that I would probably <laughs> lean towards inviting a chaplain into the room would be, let's say that the patient's spiritual belief is not something, maybe you prescribe to a different religion, right? Let's say that they're like praying to the spaghetti monster, which is, I think there is an actual like religious group that does pray to the spaghetti monster. If you sit and you pray to the spaghetti monster with them, you may have done two things. Number one, maybe a little bit compromised your own self faith in that situation. And number two, you may have violated the patient's trust as well by not pretending, but not taking their faith as seriously in the same way that they do it. Does that make sense? Am I saying that? Am I translating that forward? Yeah, although I think that... Now, why am I answering this question? <laughs> well, you're on the show. Well, that's why. I, I don't know. Like, well, as somebody who doesn't consider themselves of a particular faith or anything like that, I, I, you know, or somebody who finds themselves being asked by patients really anything. I don't know. I don't. I, I don't yeah, know like, much why about your career, I, but I haven't seen you in the hospital. Patients lot, don't really so. come by and you know ask yeah. Dave, "What should I do?" <laughs> but you're welcome to answer. I, I think probably just being open and honest with the patient about what I see as my role here, what my beliefs are, 
I'm going to, you know, if I was of a different faith, then I would say, let's both pray to the people that we believe in or the deities we believe in or whatever. I'm sure I would have thought ahead of time about this topic. As you are doing. (laughs) Yes. And would come up with a much better way to put this. But I mean, is that? Oh, I think it's easy in these situations to be like, I have to come up with an answer immediately right now. But I mean, communication is key. And that's what you're doing in that situation, right? You're verbalizing that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's kind of how I was like thinking of it, too. Like the way I would approach it. I guess for me, the difference would be, and I recognize that this puts me in a minority I'm incredibly heterodox. You're used to be. You're used to be. I am. I'm a. I'm an interesting enigma when it comes to many <laughs> topics, and I'm comfortable with that. But I do not mean this as a pejorative. But I feel like a lot of religious people are reasonably rigid in their theology, right, and their approach to their relationship with deity. There's nothing wrong with that per se. I am less so and more comfortable with adapting somebody else's approach to deity for the situation if Mm -hmm. that's what's going to be meaningful for them and i don't think that it detracts anything from how i have a relationship with deity so for that reason i would still feel very comfortable but also understanding that's the case for a lot of people that it it isn't easy to do that adaptation without feeling like you're compromising or, or doing something falsely i can understand why for most people that might not be the right answer and that's also okay that's a great point this article talked about that being a thing of like oh you're compromising your own self identity but even that is on a spectrum right i think that's a great point yeah i just have to say there shouldn't be one right answer (laughs) (laughs) take that up with the course coordinator yeah Yeah. (laughs) hard to write a test yeah. I guess all of the above is always a, you know. Always click all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they're like, accept, and then it's like one off the wall thing, and like uh, all the rest of them are options, but. Yeah. I mean, the lecture that we gave in the fall listed several options. Mm-hmm not saying that any one of them is really preferable to the others and it's entirely possible that that was the question like how they worded it on the test i just remember there actually being a question about it it seems like there might have been a right answer here but okay so yeah no david's like i'm gonna have to have words with (laughs) (laughs) so say you do offer to invite a chaplain and the patient says but the chaplain isn't the one doing the surgery you guys are why won't you pray with me? What do you do? A. Explain that you do not prescribe to the same religious beliefs and leave the room. B. <laughs> tell the Miss pa- me with that, sir. <laughs> B. Explain that you don't prescribe to the same beliefs and then ask, I see you're scared. Tell me more about your fears. C. Explain that you don't prescribe to the same beliefs but would be happy to sit in silence while they pray. Or D something else donut donut <laughs> can't, be, can't be taken off the table potentially <laughs> <laughs> okay I, I got really confused for a second you know, i actually googled oh like pres- yeah i actually googled that i was like, like pres- prescri- do you write a prescription for the same beliefs for the donut <laughs> <laughs> See, I my immediate thought would be, well, I also am not going to be performing the surgeries. Oh, oh, oh. as a medical student, that's not. I'm going to be standing. (laughs) Trust me, you don't want me to be involved. (laughs) But yeah, I'll let you guys answer before I give. Rude. (laughs) I've actually had patients before that 
are religious and ask my resident when i was on surgery i was paired up with a resident on vascular who actually is very deeply religious and wants to do like global surgery and do missionary work and patients from time to time would ask to pray and he would pray with them but they also lined up in their beliefs most of the time mm-hmm. which ended up being in the favor of the patient when it comes to that situation where like things line up it's great and the patient does feel very empowered after but i haven't necessarily witnessed the other where like the patient may be muslim and the team might not have a muslim person on it so what do you do then and if they refuse to or if they want to have you pray with them what do you do and being somebody who lives in a state where most people wouldn't line up with like i grew up muslim i was raised muslim i wouldn't know necessarily what to do other than i'm here to listen and that's honestly a kindness that i think should be offered no matter what it's just having a listening ear see i i think for me um so there's this idea it's it's called the narcissism of small differences anybody ever heard this phrase before no okay i feel like i'm just i'm a dictionary that's my job on this show is I just mean, to that's bring why, up new words and that's why i like having you here <laughs> because you know then it, it elevates it from dave just being like i don't know you're sitting next to the prescribed girl so. yeah you know uh, i wasn't gonna say anything but I'm, I'm glad we got that figured out so the narcissism of small differences is this idea that you might agree with somebody on 95 99 of the things but you pick that one to five percent of things that you disagree on and that's where you're going to make your fight in part it's because it's easier to argue with somebody that you mostly agree with so you can stake out your ideological purity it's also you tend to get more points by fighting for people on your own side right but i notice this a lot in religion it's very common right christianity islam and judaism are the three largest faiths on the planet christianity and islam representing a full what like three-fourths of the planet at least on paper there's a lot that they have in common but we're going to fight over the things that they don't right instead i like to do what i've affectionately referred to as the humility of small similarities if there's something in common focus on that and if somebody is praying to a deity okay we've got that in common i do that too right and so our understanding of what that deity looks like or even acts like might be different but the idea that we're appealing to something larger than ourselves in a moment when we feel like we need some extra help boy how do you can i understand Mm -hmm. and i can be here for you during that moment and that i think kind of trumps all of those other concerns that well you know we have a different idea of what the most important day of the week might be or our specific religious practices or even the name that we would prefer to call our deity that doesn't matter what matters is right now we're feeling small and we need some help and I can understand that feeling and I can be with you here for that. So, And I'd hope that's something that anyone can relate to even if you don't prescribe to any deity, right? <laughs> yeah. Or ascribe. That was fun. I, I, I thought you were going with the continuity there. It was nice. <laughs> I think prescribe is okay. Prescribe is not. I don't know. I'm, okay. Can't be a dictionary all the time. Sorry, guys. Listeners, if you want to tell Hind that she's wrong about her word choice, you know what to do. <laughs> Send an email to the shortcodes at gmail.com. I will share it with her. Glad I can help <laughs> increase engagement. <laughs> so Does I, anyone have any? Cl- yeah. I'd just like to follow up. That was very well said, Jeff, that 
you know, that's the most important thing is being present, being there for someone who's feeling very vulnerable in that situation and trying to meet the need as best you can in a way that's not terribly uncomfortable for you, but will be meaningful to the patient. I might even suggest going back to the original question, if I remember it correctly, maybe the appropriate thing to do if you're not feeling super comfortable with it is, let me grab the chaplain and they say, well, he's not going to be there. You are. They say, well, I'm happy to stay in here with the chaplain. I'm inexperienced at this and I want to learn and I want to be able to meet your needs. So I'm happy to be here with you, but I think the chaplain will help us really make sure that all of your needs are met in this way. That way you're still engaged. And frankly, you're going to learn a lot from the experience, which should be good for you as a provider in the future. But you're still making sure their needs are met, not by somebody who's just, you know, an M3 still wet behind the ears over here, you know, that barely knows anything. So that might also be a solution, a compromise of sorts. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, yeah, first, like, addressing, like, their fears and then, like, going from there, like, and a lot of people, you know, prior to, like, we had that lecture, I had no idea what a chaplain did to in the hospital, like, so my assumption is that maybe, like, a lot of patients don't know either, so I guess explaining that role is, like, could help with understanding. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the reality is, though, you probably have limited time. And mm-hmm. to get a chaplain there right away might be a challenge. Okay. So that might be the ideal to have a chaplain come in. But I encourage you to keep thinking about how you would handle those situations on your own as well. So that's in all likelihood you'll have to at some point. Yeah. Maybe as a medical student, you might have more flexibility to be like, you know, okay, well, we'll. You know, happy to like to do what Jeff said, but maybe at a later time when the chaplain is available. But yeah, I think that makes sense that yeah. a doctor or some other provider may not be as flexible or be able to be as flexible to yeah. to do that. I guess a perfect solution isn't available, not in medicine, surely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've noticed that life in general tends to not achieve that. I wanted to ask one more question before I let everybody go. And that is, as people of science, is there a conflict for you personally between the scientific nature of medicine and the faith that you subscribe to? So medicine requires evidence and faith requires faith. And the two, to me, seem to oppose each other or be at least be intention. Any anybody want to talk about that? I could talk about that for another episode. <laughs> Literally like two hours or something. It's a oh, big uh, sorry, I thought this would be simple. <laughs> I can just a short answer then. Maybe we'll maybe this will be a two parter. Maybe in the future we'll do Ooh. another episode. Okay, all right. Yeah, that's I'll keep the crowd pleased. I hope. <laughs> so my general thought is, I, and I think that I might be at least in this room unique in that I ascribe. To a faith that wow. side eye, wow. I saw has, that. Oh my god! I was mostly at AJ actually. So, <laughs> uh, has a, a tenet of our faith that all truth will be circumscribed into one great whole. So, any truth that we find, we claim it. And I find that to be an, an incredibly power empowering tenet of faith. And I get the idea that maybe there is a little bit of tension between empirical evidence for science and a more spiritual based evidence but certainly less empirical evidence i guess for the crowd for religious or spiritual experiences apart from the fact that i have so many contradictions in my 
self already as a human being that like that divine tension stretches me in the best of ways i find that to be invigorating not destructive but as a whole i, I think that it's part of my it's a religious imperative for me to find out more truth more scientific truth because that is my way of interacting with deity saying let me understand or, or even maybe glorify would be a word that we'd find in a religious community let me glorify this deity by understanding the beauty that is the universe around us and so for me there isn't really a conflict as much as it's like those waves that we i was talking about they amplify one another they're mm-hmm. constructive yeah okay. for me i do Oops. i think personally the way i'm also muslim and the, the way i kind of approach kind of my faith is like asking questions is part of the faith like questioning the things that you are told either in like a religious sense or in science that's what science is it's questioning right i mean you're kind of doing the same thing in both of those roles that's a very short answer but yeah just to add on to what to jeff's point yeah well we may have to leave it there do you guys have something you need to get to yeah unfortunately yeah no, oh. we can make it a two-parter. We'll, we'll be back. We'll think about that. Yeah, yeah, we'll Listeners, think about let us know. Let us know if you want to hear more. Yeah. Well, that's our show. Hint. Thanks for producing the show with me today. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Yeah. And David, AJ, Jeff, Ravina, thanks for joining us. Yeah, of course. And thanks. remember, everybody, today's episode was brought to you by words. <laughs> made up, and definitions don't matter. And what kind of apocrypha? I ascribe to this. <laughs> and what kind of apocrypha would I be promulgating if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making us a part of your week? If you're new and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Thank you to this week's editor, A.J. Chowdhury. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave <laughs> Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, short coats. Look, life in medical education Life in America, life in the world is often difficult, and I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use. But the bottom line is that for what it's worth, I see you. I know you're out there. I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about. But I see you and I'm glad you're here and other people are too. This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com.